It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast, free every day. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Bayer on the panel, Fox News Channel, 6 p.m. hour. Hope you'll tune in for that. On today's show here on the radio, General Jack Keane will join us later this hour, reacting to probably the biggest foreign policy news in a while. In fact, we will be covering that here in just a moment. Sandra Smith on the economy, inflation, shortages, and more coming up in the next hour. Senator Mike Braun, Republican, Indiana, on a new proposal that he's endorsing. That's later in the show. We'll talk to the senator. And Matt Finn from Chicago with the very latest on the Jussie Smollett trial. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you stats on COVID. 49.2 million confirmed cases in the United States, all in. Cumulatively, the real number is much higher. Omicron now being confirmed in more states across our country. The death toll People dying with or of COVID in the United States over the last 20 months, 788,315. The Dow is up 536 points, so another big day on Wall Street. Dow currently trading at 35,762. Fox News alert. President Biden spoke with Vladimir Putin earlier as the world is fearing, if not anticipating, an invasion by the Russians into Ukraine. What did our president say to Vladimir Putin? Jake Sullivan is the national security advisor at the White House. You may remember him from Afghanistan and all of his answers to many of the questions he was asked on that debacle. He is currently briefing the press at the White House in the briefing room right now. Let's listen live. This is the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, taking questions from the White House press corps. The question here is not that uh, about whether or not the United States is going to send American service members to the territory of our NATO allies. We do that as a matter of course. The question is, what additional capabilities can we provide to ensure that they feel strong and confident in their own sovereignty and territorial integrity? It is those additional capabilities that are on the table in those countries uh, should uh, uh, Russia move in Ukraine in, in a more decisive way. Yes. Okay, thanks so much. In the days leading up to this call, the White House and administration officials said repeatedly their assessment so far was that Putin had not made a decision over whether to invade Ukraine. So did President Biden get clarity from him on whether or not that is his intention? We still do not believe that President Putin has made a decision. What President Biden did today was lay out very clearly the consequences if he chooses to move. He also laid out an alternative path, an alternative path that is fundamentally in keeping with the basic principles and propositions that have guided America in the Euro-Atlantic area for the past 70 years. And ultimately, we will see in the days ahead through actions, not through words, 
uh, what course of action Russia chooses to take. Yes. In your statement, one, sorry, Jake, one quick follow-up. In your statement of the readout of the call, you said that the United, the President Biden told him the United States was ready to take strong economic measures and other actions if needed. What are those other measures that the United States is prepared to take? I just spelled those out in my opening remarks, both the supply and provision of additional materiel as well as uh, the additional uh, deployment of assets and capabilities okay. to to uh, NATO members in the event that there's a further encouragement. Yeah. What, what are the strong economic measures, and how are they different from the ones you put on Russia in 2014, which didn't deter Russia from taking Crimea? Why will, what are they, and why do you think they'll work better this time? I will look you in the eye and tell you, as President Biden looked President Putin in the eye and told him today, that things we did not do in 2014, we are prepared to do now. Now, in terms of the specifics, we would prefer to communicate that directly to the Russians, to not negotiate in public, to not telegraph our punches, but we are laying out for the Russians in some detail the types of measures that we have in mind. We are also coordinating very closely with our European allies on that at a level of deep specificity. We have experts from the Treasury Department, the State Department, and the National Security Council in daily contact with the key capitals and with Brussels to work through that package of measures. But I think it is not profitable for us to lay out the specific of it standing here at this podium today. Thank you. Um, did President Putin ask for President Biden to commit to not allow NATO or Ukraine to join NATO? And did President Biden make any kinds of concessions such as a reduced U.S. presence or any um, commitment on NATO and Ukraine's membership? I'm not going to characterize President Putin's side of the conversation and or go into details in terms of what they discussed because I think they need to have that space uh, to be able to have uh, robust exchange. But I will tell you clearly and directly he made no such commitments or concessions. He stands by the proposition that countries should be able to freely choose who they and associate with. The, the material yes. that you said that you're going to send following up on Caitlin's question, how quickly can that be delivered? We have an ongoing pipeline that delivers uh, various forms of defensive assistance to Ukraine. Indeed, there was the delivery of defensive assistance to Ukraine just very recently, and, and that will continue. So it really depends on the type or form, but it sh this should not be thought of as uh, a circumstance in which you completely turn off the dial or turn on the dial. There is an ongoing pipeline whether that pipeline needs additional supplements as we go forward will depend on how circumstances evolve. Yes. Thank you so much. You have said that the administration will take action if Russia does escalate militarily. Satellite images show that hundreds of Russian troops are amassing on the border with Ukraine. Isn't there already a military escalation underway? Why wait to take action? So our view on this is that the fundamental uh, object of the policy the United States is pursuing in lockstep with our European allies is to deter a Russian military uh, invasion of further territory of Ukraine. And the measures we have put on the table are designed to show the Russian government that should it choose to engage in such an invasion, uh, there will be those consequences. That for us is a clear and decisive laydown. Uh, and we also believe that there should be an alternative pathway by which we can make progress on diplomacy in the Donbass through the Minsk agreement and the Normandy format, and by which we can address 
NATO and American security concerns and Russian security concerns through a larger mechanism consistent with the way we've operated over the course of the past 30 years. Republicans are accusing President Biden of being too weak on President Putin. They cite the fact that sanctions were eased on Nord Stream 2 and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was widely criticized. How do you respond to that criticism that President Biden is being too weak with Mr. Putin? I make three points. The first is that uh, Vladimir Putin standing behind then-President Medvedev in 2008 invaded Georgia when we had 150,000 or more troops deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. So the connection between our deployments in foreign wars and the calculus of Russian leaders when it comes to the post-Soviet space, there's not good evidence to support that. Number two, when it comes to Nord Stream 2, the fact is the gas is not currently flowing through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which means that it's not operating, which means that it's not leveraged for Putin. Indeed, uh, it is uh, a leverage for the West, because if Vladimir Putin wants to see gas flow through that pipeline, he may not want to take the risk of invading Ukraine. And then number three, the president has shown over the course of the past eight months that he will do what he says he's going to do in response to Russian actions. So President Putin can count on that. He said he would impose costs for Navalny. He said he would impose costs for solar winds. He did those things. And if Russia chooses to take these actions in Ukraine, he will do the same. He's not doing this to saber rattle. He's not doing it to make idle threats. He's doing it to be clear and direct with uh, both the Russians and with our European allies about the best way forward. And we think this stands the best chance alongside a pathway uh, to de-escalate uh, to uh, avert a potential crisis with respect to an invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Russia suggested in recent days starting talks on a new European security pact. Did Putin bring this up and did President Biden agree to start those talks? Again, I'm not going to get into the details or characterize what President Putin said. Uh, and uh, I will say that formal agreements or formal treaties were not on the table in the conversation today. But the straightforward notion that the United States, flanked by our European allies and partners, would be prepared to talk to Russia about strategic issues in the European theater, uh, that was on the table. And we are prepared to do that, as we've been prepared to do that throughout both the Cold War and post-Cold War eras. What the right mechanism for that is, what the agenda for that is, and what comes of that, that is all to be worked out as uh, we see how things proceed in the coming days. Since late October, why hasn't the U.S. given additional material to Ukraine yet? This has been escalating for weeks. Why wait? <laughs> As I just pointed out uh, in response to an earlier question, we are continuing to deliver uh, defensive uh, material assistance to Ukraine. Uh, we have done so just in the past few days. The Kremlin readout said that President Putin proposed to President Biden that both lift all restrictions on diplomatic missions that have been imposed in recent years. Can you say whether that's something President Biden is open to or whether it's something he spoke to on the call? President Biden is open to creating functioning diplomatic missions in both countries. Uh, but he didn't make any specific commitments with respect to the best pathway to do that. What he said was that as leaders, President Biden and President Putin should direct their teams to figure out how we ensure that the embassy platform in Moscow 
uh, is able to function effectively. And uh, as we believe, the embassy platform here in Washington is able to operate effectively for and, the and Russians. And just to follow up on Nord Stream, have you sent any message or had any meetings with the incoming German government on this issue? Are you urging the new incoming government to essentially threaten to pull support for this pipeline if there is an incursion, a further incursion into Ukraine? We've had intensive discussions with both the outgoing and incoming German governments on the issue of Nord Stream 2 in the context of a potential invasion. I'm not going to characterize it beyond that, other than it is a, an object of great priority for the Biden, Biden administration. Biden his they, waiver they, on they, they, I'm sorry. Um, so the, obviously the summit is being watched by a number of other adversaries, inclu including Chinese President Xi Jinping. Some observers have described a nightmare scenario where uh, President Putin invades Ukraine and also simultaneously pre uh, President Xi uses force to reunify Taiwan with China. Is the U.S. prepared to deal with such a scenario? The United States is going to take every action that we can take from the point of view of both deterrence and diplomacy to make sure that the Taiwan scenario you just described never happens and to try to avert the uh, invasion and deter the invasion into Ukraine. That is the object of our policy right now. Those are the steps we are taking. That's what President Biden is doing and the messages that he's sending to President Putin. And with respect to Taiwan, the sum total of the efforts we've undertaken over the course of the past eight months in the Indo-Pacific have also all been geared towards avoiding any kind of scenario where, where China chooses to invade. Yes. Is there any promise from the Russian side to use leverage uh, to change Iran on its position? The President and uh, President Putin had a good discussion on the Iran issue. It was productive. Russia and the United States actually worked well together, even in tense circumstances back in the 2014-2015 period to produce the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. This is an area where Russia and the United States can continue to consult closely to ensure that Iran never acquires a new Russia. Why did Ukrainian officials first deny that there was any truth buildup when Washington started putting out the information and then change their tune after the meeting with Lincoln? So I'm not going to characterize the decision-making of the Ukrainian government, only to say that we are in daily contact with senior officials in uh, the Ukrainian government. I'm in nearly daily contact with my counterpart in the Ukrainian government, and we believe that we are seeing a common threat picture here. And our message to uh, our friends in the Ukrainian government, as our message was today to President Putin, is that the United States supports the Minsk process, wants to see progress made towards a ceasefire, towards confidence-building measures, and that is the best way forward. Yeah. All right, you are listening live to Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor in the Biden administration, taking questions from the press corps at the White House following today's virtual meeting between President Biden and Vladimir Putin as the U.S. government is warning, along with the entire West, against what people believe may be an imminent Imminent could be weeks, could be months. Russian invasion of Ukraine, another one. They already took Crimea. They've already been engaged in eastern Ukraine elsewhere. This would be a larger scale invasion deeper into sovereign territory of Ukraine. And you're hearing what the Biden team is saying, at least publicly to the world, about what happened on that call earlier today between the two leaders. We will continue to monitor that here on The Guy Benson Show. General Jack Keane will be joining us later this hour to give us his reaction, what he makes of all of this. 
In the meantime, we will take a quick break. When we come back, an important update on the Omicron COVID variant. We will get to that as soon as we return on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We are back as we continue to keep an eye on this briefing at the White House. I also want to bring you an update on COVID and the Omicron variant. And we've been asking these questions since the very beginning. Does the new variant spread more rapidly or more easily? It appears that the answer to that question might be yes at this point. Not definitive, but there are several indications that that could be the case. More contagious. We talked about that yesterday with Dr. McCary here on the show. We also were wondering about vaccines. We don't have a great answer to that question yet. Do they work? Experts seem to believe that they will at least work with some protection, and we're waiting on more data there. However, to me, the key question is virulence, severity. And we're getting more pieces and strands of good news, I would say. I wrote about it today at townhall.com on the tip sheet. I have a couple different examples that I give And I include part of this New York Times report that I want you to hear. Dateline, Johannesburg, South Africa. The COVID-19 virus is spreading faster than ever in South Africa, the country's president said Monday, an indication of how the new Omicron variant is driving the pandemic. But there are early indications that Omicron may cause less serious illness than other forms of the virus. Researchers at a major hospital complex in Pretoria reported that their patients with the coronavirus are now much less sick than those they have treated before and that other hospitals are seeing the same trends. In fact, they said most of their infected patients were admitted for other reasons and have no COVID symptoms, which is obviously encouraging news. Much less severe with most of the patients coming in testing positive, showing up at the hospital for a completely different reason asymptomatic. Scientists caution against placing too much stock in either potential good news or potential bad news and say that more study is needed. Okay, fair enough, but we can only work with the data and the information that we have, and there seems to be better data coming out that continues to be encouraging to the point that even Dr. Fauci is sounding relatively upbeat for him. The New York Times story notes that we're seeing similar patterns in Europe. They quote a doctor in South Africa saying the number of patients, the percentage of patients needing supplemental oxygen is way down. He's out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Saying this is not looking like COVID triage. This is looking sort of like a normal hospital environment now. So the virulence question so far, so good, I would say, about the answer there. 
We're keeping an eye on that. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast, free on demand every day after the show. We are joined now by General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News' senior strategic analyst. General, good to have you back. Yeah, great to be here, Guy, with you and your audience. We just dipped in live to the briefing with Jake Sullivan at the White House, the National Security Advisor, addressing today's virtual meeting between President Biden, Vladimir Putin, this issue of Ukraine, obviously, front and center. Let's just start with your reaction. What were your some some of your big takeaways of what the National Security Advisor said? What jumped out at you as he briefed the press corps today? Well, first of all, I mean, it, it's critical that this meeting take place. And, and there's and as he mentioned in his uh, presser, there's no substitute, you know, for for direct contact between two leaders, you know, who have such fundamental disagreements, and and the potential of conflict is on the horizon. So, having this session uh, is the right thing to do. It, it gets the opportunity for Putin to air his concerns and his frustrations that he has, and and they're deep founded. Uh, to our president, and our president gets to lay out the consequences of Putin's actions if he's going to uh, introduce the military conflict and military incursion in a, in Ukraine, and with no equivocation. Uh, and that's the good thing. You look look each other in the eye and and be direct and frank about what our positions are and what our intent is. There is really no substitute. Uh, for something like that. Staff can be very helpful in framing issues, but then in dealing one-on-one is very important. And and Putin is a master at making assessments of American presidents. I I frankly think uh, from 2000 when he began to deal with uh, President Bush after 2001 uh, through the current uh, president, uh, he he's a he's a master at dealing with our presidents, and to be frank about it, uh, he he's out his way with, uh, with with most of them, because he 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 reads them so well, and he knows how to advantage his position at the expense of the of the United States. So these meetings, and how our president uh, uh, is able to carry the day in terms of uh, his conviction. Uh, his determination and his resolve is a measurement that Putin is, is paying a lot of attention to. He knows Biden for sure, uh, and he's also formed an opinion of him after he's had this his first session. But some specifics. I, I mean, clearly what we are telling Putin is that we are going to respect the sovereignty and the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and they and their desires. In other words, if they want to move to integrate with the European Union, if at some time they want to have membership in NATO, that's their decision. And we're not going to dismiss those decisions cavalierly because they are a a fledgling democracy. And certainly that is the very reason why 
uh, Yanukovych, uh, Putin stooge Yanukovych, who was running the country in 2014, he was deposed by the people in a street revolution that that made him flee. And the reason for the people being upset was because they wanted to move towards the West and away from Russia, towards prosperity and towards better political and military security for their democracy, which they were beginning to enjoy and know it's very different from what's taking place in Russia. Second thing I got out of this is that we're going to issue certainly some tough sanctions on Russia, and it was made clear to them that the sanctions that we had considered doing in 2014 that were the real tough ones, which Putin was very much aware of, this is the taking him out of the international banking system, which would right. devastate his economy, and some other issues like Nord Stream 2, which really wasn't a, uh, that much of an issue in 2014, but it is now, and some other things dealing uh, <clears throat> with his oil and gas industry and some of his inner circles. There, there's a host of things that, that we can do um, that would actually have significant impact on Putin in a way that previous sanctions guy, you know, he has pretty much absorbed those sanctions and blew them off. And well, really and, and that's his behavior. Just to jump in before you get to your third point, I want to stay on this one for a second because I think it's important. And that's one of the obvious questions that comes to mind. You saw what the Russians did in Georgia, the country of Georgia in 2008, and basically got away with it to a certain extent. They absolutely got away with taking Crimea from Ukraine with that sham election. They also had incursions elsewhere in Ukraine with little green men. And the world said, that's not good. We're not happy. There were sanctions. There was tough talk, right? All of that. And none of that history has clearly deterred Putin from uh, growing more rapacious, wanting even more, and now setting up at least what would appear to be a staging ground for a land invasion, 175,000 personnel, all sorts of equipment and that sort of thing. If the previous actions from the West, the United States, whomever, have not been sufficient to stop him, why do we believe that even some tougher sanctions might be an effective deterrent this time? Because of the nature of those sanctions. Certainly President Bush, if you recall, it was on his watch that Putin moved into Georgia. Now, the reason, so our audience understands, that Putin's number one frustration is not the collapse of the Soviet Union, which certainly is a frustration, but his number one frustration is what happened after that. That 14 nations that used to be part of the Soviet Union joined NATO, the very organization that helped to enable the collapse of the Soviet Union. That is what frosts him. And he, on his watch, he was determined to stop those dominoes from falling. So that is why he went into Georgia, because Georgia was raising their hand. NATO was inviting them in. He couldn't get their attention to stop. So he put troops in there. President Bush, 2008, let's reflect back what was happening. We had the surge going on in Iraq. It it was enjoying some success. We had 150,000 troops there. We had activity in Afghanistan, to say the least. Our president was distracted. He was was losing a war in 2006. He spent 2007 and 2008 uh, 
turning that war around, much much to his success. So I I, I give him a, a bit of a pass there, but it doesn't mean that we couldn't have begun to impose some tough sanctions on him. 2014 with Obama, uh, no excuse as far as I'm concerned for the lack of follow-up uh, to what Putin did. We should have hammered him then with the sanctions we're talking about now. And, and that was a huge mistake. And remember this, Obama's entire national security team, to include the vice president of the United States at the time, Biden, wanted Obama to provide significant lethal aid and training to the Ukrainians, and he said no. What what a mistake that was. And that is why uh, Putin has been become emboldened in dealing with the United States. Now, when President Trump came in, he turned that around. And what did he do? He provided lethal aid to the Ukrainians. He provided he advisors did. to the trainings. We have generals over there who are helping the Ukrainians think through the strategy and their military operations. Uh, we sent uh, General John Abizade over there from, uh, excuse me, who was a commander at CENTCOM uh, during the Iraq-Afghanistan war, and others uh, like him to do that sort of thing. So there, there was movement there. And of course, the most significant thing that President Trump was doing was pushing back on a Nord Stream 2 pipeline deal. He wasn't going to let that happen at all. So wait And then it the went deal. through, right? So Biden yeah, comes in and green lights the pipeline. So that's a concession to Putin. It's like a, a dream come true for Putin. Of course, the Germans wanted it too for economic and energy reasons. But that's a big concession to Putin. And Putin says, thank you very much, and now starts amassing a huge amount of troops on the border of Ukraine. I know they're talking about maybe rescinding that, saying this is still our leverage because it's not operational yet. Is that true? Do you think that threat is significant for Putin? Or would it have to be that threat plus these type of devastating sanctions, plus the lethal aid to Ukraine that they're talking about? I, I think all of that uh, would have to come into play. I would also, um, and I recommended this uh, on Fox a couple of days ago, if he comes in, remember that Putin's object, object is not just to stop the nine aligned, in other words, countries not in NATO, from going into NATO. Like Ukraine. He also wants to undermine NATO. And he's doing, you can see it right now, he's doing it through Belarus, where he's enabling Belarus to escalate activities against Poland by weaponizing migration. And yep. the Polish military has had to come down on their, their eastern border to contend this. So my thought process would be, if the invasion takes place in Ukraine and Putin escalates like that, to make certain that there's no equivocation that we're going to stand by NATO, NATO forces that are already in in Europe should be positioned in its significant additions in Poland at least. And would NATO forces in the Boston. Can can I ask you, General, would it be possible let's say this invasion starts, right? And I don't know why you would do everything. They're insisting, oh, we haven't made a decision, we're not gonna do this. The White House says they're not sure if Putin has made a decision one way or another. Well he's doing everything that he would do, it would seem uh, if he were intending to move forward with this invasion, if that happens, even though Ukraine is not a member of NATO, does NATO get involved? 
does NATO, like militarily, I don't know if that's boots on the ground, I don't know if that's a real big step up in providing military aid to the Ukrainians, and how much do you know, General, about the capability and readiness of the Ukrainian military? Could they repel this kind of invasion from the Russians, or is the Russian military just much bigger and better equipped and and it would ultimately fall. I don't even know, do they want to take over the whole country? Do they want to just take over part of Ukraine? That's a lot that I just threw at you. Uh, feel free to answer it as best you can. Let me unpack some of that. Um, first of all, we've been dealing with Russian incursion in Ukraine since 2014. So three presidents have had to deal with this. None of those three presidents have ever put on the table using troops in Ukraine to defend Ukraine against Russian military operation. And so, and NATO's position is not, that's the United States position and NATO's position is to provide lethal aid to assist them so they can defend themselves and certainly support them, but not to put troops in there because it's okay. not an aligned country. So that, right. that would not happen. Uh, the, the second thing certainly is there would be dramatic amount. I think there should be a dramatic amount of increase in terms of material and, and equipment to give the Ukraine. One of the things the Biden administration is, they're saying how they're providing lethal aid to the Ukrainians, but guy, but they're not giving the Ukrainians anywhere near what they're really asking for. They're giving them some things. Yes. So they can say, yeah, we're helping the Ukrainians, but you want to give them this, the significant assistance that will help to impose costs. The Russians can overwhelm U- Ukraine military at some point, but the Ukrainians are fierce fighters, and and they will fight and they will cause casualties, and and there will be issues at home domestically, economically for him, and also in terms of casualties. He's got to weigh all of that. The w- number one thing that he watches, just like President Xi does, domestic audience. An economic impact on on his people. If it's if it's it's already major problem for him. If that becomes severe, uh, that that would be devastating for him. Uh, what do you and, think his and, objective and, is? And we only have a minute or two left here. What do you think his objective would be if he were to invade? How far would he want to go? Is this to make a point? Is this to gain and hold territory? Is this to bring down the government of Ukraine? What does he want? No, no, he would he would. He would go into eastern in the Donbass area, solidify that area. It's unlikely he would go into significant amount of what I would call unoccupied space right now, where there's no uh, Russian or separatist movement. And he would not try to take down the country. If he took the country down, the Ukrainian uh, people want to be a part of the West. They are fledgling democracy. They do not want a part of Russia. Crimea is another issue. And as a result, that's what's frustrating Putin so much. Is we, have, we have a democracy on his border that's beginning to blossom, and they want more economic prosperity by, move, by moving to the West. If he, if he took that Kiev down, which he could, they would fight him with an insurgency for as long as it took to depose the Russians. They would never give up. And he knows that. And he also has his own his own country's participation in Afghanistan in his rearview mirror, which also turned out to be a futile effort. But the Ukrainians are tough. 
And he, he doesn't want any part of that mm. kind of thing because that would eventually probably push Putin out of power. The, Ameri- oh, very... uh, the, the Russian people would want no part of a protracted war against the Ukrainians. Very complex and volatile situation. It looks like he feels, at least for now, like it would be in his interest to do something. What that would be, when, the extent of it, whether he does it at all, those are all open questions and part of today's conversation with uh, the president and Vladimir Putin was to try to say this will not be business as usual. This will not be 2014 redux if you move forward with this. I hope that's enough. We'll be keeping track of this story, of course. And General Jack Keane, I hope we can have you back as events unfold. He's a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on the Guy Benson Show. 80 years ago. Listen. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressing the Congress and the nation after the Pearl Harbor attack, the surprise attack that pulled America fully into World War II. The Japanese hit us, and it did not end well for them. John McCormick of the National Review notes that the USS West Virginia was sunk at Pearl Harbor. It was rebuilt, fought the Japanese in the Philippines and Okinawa, and was present in Tokyo Bay for the surrender in 1945. Pretty amazing. That was today, 80 years ago. It's the Guy Benson Show. Another hour coming up. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour underway on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in each weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, of course. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. 
If you miss a moment, it's on demand, no charge to you. Join me on Special Report tonight with Brett Baer. We'll be talking about Putin and Biden in the meeting today, among other topics. Looking forward to that. Fox News alert in our middle hour. The Dow closes up 492 points, so shy of session highs, but still a big day. In positive territory, the Dow ending today at 35,719. With us now is Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports with John Roberts. Every weekday, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. And Sandra, it is great to have you back here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Guy. You just heard that number on the Dow, a big rally today. Obviously, there are often multiple influences that you can point to when the markets are having a big day or a huge, you know, a huge down day or perhaps just bumping right along. There's been a rally these last couple of sessions. What do you think has been driving the big recovery from the multi-hundred point collapses that we'd seen, for example, late last week? As you know, I I catch up with traders often, Wall Street analysts often. I talk to our own folks like Charlie Gasparino a few minutes ago, Larry Kudlow and others, Charlie uh, Payne. Um, It all seems to be about the markets were spooked last week by this new COVID variant, uh, Omicron, coming to surface. There was, you know, a a huge market reaction to that. As you remember, there was over 900 point sell off the day after Thanksgiving um, because of those fears. A lot of those fears have now eased, considering even folks like like Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that there is no reason to believe that a vaccinated individual can't fight off this Omicron variant the same way they would Delta. It doesn't appear to be more severe, more dangerous in nature, while it can be more contagious, but it'll relieve some of the concerns and fears in the market guy. And so we've sort of had this, this rally, this comeback, because it appears perhaps the worst case scenario is not happening. And, you know, there, at one point there was fears we would have to live through another shutdown, a national shutdown, whatever that may be. And it, it appears the market's putting some of those more dramatic fears behind us. Yeah. And we mentioned in the first hour and quoted from a New York Times story citing doctors on the ground in South Africa and elsewhere saying we are treating patients Many of them are here. They test positive. They're not even symptomatic for COVID. This is a much less virulent strain. That's their experience. And again, you don't want to get ahead of the data, but those are very strong indications that, as you say, the worst case scenario uh, is not going to come to fruition. And in fact, it could be just the opposite. If it's a less severe variant, that in many ways would be quite good news. So that would make sense that the markets would react not just on the public health side of things, but on the economic government restriction side of things. If they feel like, okay, there's not going to be a reason to do this or a pretext to do this, uh, that makes us feel better. Uh, Let's let's feel a little bit more bullish. In the meantime, though, Sandra, we are getting reports basically every day about inflation, about supply chain issues and shortages. In fact, over on CNBC – They were talking about some of the business owners that they've spoken to and what business owners across the country are experiencing. Here's part of what we heard from Kate Rogers, Cut 16. 
75% of small business owners say they're experiencing higher supply costs. That's up from 70% last quarter. Among those who are facing rising costs, nearly 4 in 10 say that they're raising prices to offset those costs. Another 39% told us that they're planning to raise prices if costs continue to increase. 58% say that they're being hit by supply chain disruptions. That's also up from 55% we saw in Q3. Now, when asked what the biggest risk to business is, more owners now say that inflation is riskier than supply chain disruptions. COVID concerns coming in third place with 17% of the vote, but this survey was taken pre-Omicron. Labor shortages are persisting, but interestingly enough, didn't crack the top three issues this quarter. Overall, small business confidence did tick down to 44 due to negative policy expectations under the Biden administration. This is one point from the all-time low for our index hit in Q1 of 2021. All right, so she's obviously citing some of their polling data and Business owners are obviously rightfully concerned about both of these issues, inflation and supply chain issues, and they're talking about it in their own experience. They're getting hit by it. In many cases, they're raising their own prices. There was a local NBC report in Virginia talking about supply chain affecting the price of medication, the availability of medication in some cases. And then CBS in Atlanta had this takeaway, cut 19. Half of Americans say they've seen empty shelves when trying to find some wanted items. And retailers say that this site likely isn't going anywhere anytime soon. This site of empty shelves likely not going anywhere anytime soon. Sandra, your reaction just to some of the sound that I just played for you. There are still some really tough, strong headwinds out there in our economic environment. 75 percent of small business owners say they're experiencing higher supply costs. That's something that we read. We see it in a headline, you know, and we don't really we don't really internalize that the way these small businesses have to guy. And considering the polling that's out there that I see, 98 percent of Americans support small businesses in their communities. Right. We we all want them to thrive. It's the engine of the American economy. Stop and ask a business owner near you, whether it's a restaurant tour or a coffee shop or whatever it is. Ask them what 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 cost spikes are they experiencing? Because um, it's one thing to talk about us at the grocery store. We grab what we need and we go um, and, we, and we feel the pain. Um, but they're buying stuff in mass. They're buying it in bulk. And they they see these prices daily. Stop and ask them, how much more are your limes costing or your lettuce or whatever it might be? Um, those skyrocketing prices hurt, and they ultimately are passed down to the consumer, and that is called inflation, and we're experiencing all of it. Guys, something I talked to our colleague Gasparino about today uh, was the fact that there are projections among CEOs for pay raises in the new year. And Charlie and I joked, oh, they're going to write us up for saying that that's a bad thing. Well, think about it, though. The reason why these companies are having to uh, raise their pay for their workers, whether it's salary or, or wages, is because these people are paying more for everything. So everything that they're earning is going out the door in inflation, so they need to pay them more. But then guess what happens? It's an evil cycle. If you pay people more to make up for inflation and rising prices, then the companies are paying more, and they'll ultimately raise prices. And so all the, everything all right. that you're doing to try it to adjust for itself. inflation goes right out the door. It's, it's an evil cycle, and we're sort of in the middle of it right now. Yeah. I, I want to ask you a bit more about that, too, and the impact of inflation, because there is some other polling data that we shared on the program recently about nearly half of Americans saying that they are really uh, feeling the pain uh, from inflation and people making adjustments or changes to what they're buying or what they're spending on. 
And I know some people were out there trying to spin that as saying, oh, well, that means just over half the country isn't really feeling the same pain. But Sandra, I feel like the people who are best situated to absorb some of this inflation are people at the higher end of the income scale who aren't going to hurt, right? They're going to be fine. Rich people generally are going to be fine during inflation unless it gets like way out of control. It's a really regressive thing where if you're in the middle class or lower middle class, you're a working American, you are least positioned to be able to just absorb something that others, sometimes people making the decisions, people reporting on this stuff on television who've got you know cushy jobs and job security, they're not necessarily feeling what a lot of those people are. And I think that that's a big part of this story too, isn't it? It's a tax on the lower middle class for sure. And remember, going back to just how out of touch the administration is on this issue, remember Chief of Staff to Joe Biden, Ron Klain, saying that this is a, these are high class problems. Right. This is a remarkable statement. I've never been able to forget that. But to think that this does not bring pain to, you know, a hardworking American family, um, it's it's just wrong. And in and, and on that note about the administration sort of being out of touch with the implications for the working class um, when prices go up. Guy, earlier today, and I, I took note of this because I almost couldn't believe it when I saw it, um, Secretary Marty Walsh put out a tweet that over Thanksgiving, families saw shipping prices go down 25%. No perspective on that. I'm not exactly even sure what that means. Full grocery stores, full shelves on Black Friday. And I'm thinking, is that a win? Are we, are we celebrating having goods back on our shelves again? Because um, we have a long way to go to get things back to any sort of normal. Um, so to celebrate having goods back on the shelf is interesting, and that's not even happening all over the country. There's still major shipping delays out there that are affecting all of us. Yep. Yeah, and it's also pretty wild. You're talking about of you know, sort of out-of-touch political leaders. What the Democrats are discussing doing right now amid inflation is spend trillions of more dollars we know a lot of that money is not paid for. It doesn't cost zero dollars, as they've laughably claimed. It costs trillions of dollars, hundreds of billions at least of which are not paid for, even according to CBO. The number would be a lot higher if you look at the real numbers. You want to just pump a bunch of more money out there and maybe print some more money or borrow some more money out there to spend trillions on all these programs. And part of that bill that House Democrats just voted to pass within – this context, with that backdrop, it would give tax breaks to blue state millionaires and rich people with the SALT deduction, and it would raise taxes on millions of middle-class households, according to the left-leaning tax policy institutes. So you're going to have like tax cuts for the rich in blue states, partially funded by tax increases on the middle class who are already disproportionately feeling uh, the bite and the pain from inflation, it, it just seems absolutely crazy to me that they're talking about doing this, and yet they literally voted it out of the House, and they're discussing it at least uh, pretty seriously in the United States Senate. One more thing I want to ask you about, Sandra, before I let you go, the CNN report from yesterday that the administration and the White House has been quietly calling in various journalists and meeting with uh, with. Editors and going to newsrooms and trying to shape 
the coverage of the economy in a more favorable way. And CNN said that these conversations have been productive. I don't really know what that means. It is not unusual for a political operation to try to work the refs and try to get their perspective out there in the media. I just do find it interesting that CNN seems to be kind of cheerleading this, saying like, oh, look at this outreach that they're doing. Ultimately, I think the the coverage is negative because the news is negative. And, and I don't really know how you change that without changing the economic facts on the ground. And that makes me curious what CNN means by characterizing or when they characterize these conversations as productive? Um, so I, when I saw this, when I saw this reported, I was curious to go see what some of the headlines that CNN has recently run on the economy. And what notably popped up front and center was a headline published on CNN.com. Why inflation is a political nightmare for Biden. So their coverage um, has, has, you know, it, it, it's hard to spin what's happening right now, right? Everybody's feeling it. Everybody sees it. Businesses, individuals, families, they see the higher prices. They see the supply chain woes. So, sometimes they're not able to get what they order on Amazon. A paper towel order is canceled, whatever it might be. So everybody's seeing it, right? And so CNN's covering that the way that they do. But it's not unusual, Guy, for the White House to ask for meetings with reporters to sort of give them background on their thinking, where things are right. going. That is not unusual. But if their goal is to try to reshape their coverage of the reality of the situation, um, then that is a problem. And I will tell you that we covered it a week ago when the White House, by a round claim, I believe, and Jen Psaki put out um, a I don't know if it was a press release or a tweet or a statement, um, but they said gas prices are down. And they were referencing a four-day period. We put the chart up on our screen just so we could really show how absolutely silly this was. It was a four-day period where gas prices came down, wait for it, guy, two pennies. Yeah, two, two cents. pennies. The overall <laughs> national average came down. I mean, and, and, and that was over a four-day period when, in reality, gas prices are up as a national average, a dollar from where they were a year ago. Yeah, look, um, if that's, that's your spin, the reality of the situation. Yeah. yeah, if that's your spin, you are really up against a wall because that's not going to work on anyone. Even CNN, I think, in some cases you could say. Sandra Smith is the co-anchor of America Reports, along with our colleague John Roberts. Weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. Always love watching you guys as we're getting ready for our show here. Sandra, always appreciate joining you on TV and having you here. Thanks for doing it. My pleasure, Guy. Thank you. You bet. Sandra Smith on The Guy Benson Show. And we'll be back right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Saw this story out of Massachusetts, and part of me wants to ridicule this school district, but part of me wants to commend them. So it's a place called the Hopton... Hoptington School. And here's what happened. After reaching the state's required 80% COVID-19 vaccination threshold, Hopkinton High School became the first school in Massachusetts to lift its universal indoor mask mandate last month. 
And at least after three weeks, even some initial skeptics say the trial has been a surprising success. The school committee voted Thursday to extend the trial for another three weeks, allowing vaccinated students and staff at the high school to again go maskless indoors beginning this Monday through winter break. Officials said only one high school student had tested positive for COVID-19 since the trial began November 1st and that that person had contracted the virus outside of school. So there was no evidence of any COVID-19 transmission inside the school building. Additionally, the majority of students and staff reported an improvement to the learning experience and a morale boost during the trial. Quote, the pilot was far more successful than what I had anticipated, said the chair of the school committee. So part of me wants to just say this should not be surprising. This should not be shocking that this went well beyond their expectations because we've had schools open all over the place in the United States, in a bunch of places, private schools in Florida and other states across the pond in the U.K., in the EU, where masking is not universally required. That has been the case for over a year. And even back when we didn't have a vaccine, when you didn't have 80% of a school vaccinated, there were not a bunch of huge super spreader outbreaks in schools. Schools have always been fine, by and large. And yet they're like, wow, we did this for three weeks and nothing bad happened. And we, we just can't believe it. You can only be astonished by that if you are actively ignoring lots of data and information and experience on the ground many other places over the course of a year plus. On the other hand, I have to tip my cap for this school actually doing this and admitting publicly that it went well. They're the only school that's done it so far in Massachusetts. At least they're attempting an off-ramp which is better than the alternative, which is still the case some places, believe it or not. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every day, including today. Thank you. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, where you can access the free podcast each and every day for free on demand. We are joined now by U.S. Senator Mike Braun, a Republican of Indiana. And Senator, welcome back. Hey, good to be back on, Guy. So you have engineered an effort that appears like it's going to work and succeed, at least on the Senate side this week, to try to push back against the Biden administration's vaccine mandate. I am very much on the record, super pro-vaccine, not terribly excited about government mandates, particularly on the private sector. And you've been trying to figure out a way to push back. And it's tough when you're not in control, right? The Republicans are the minority, even though it's 50-50. Democrats control the Senate. But Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, announced recently that he's on board with your push. Explain how this would work and what your expectation is moving forward here. 
So last Thursday, we actually had a floor vote on a Lee Marshall amendment that wanted to try to defund uh, the vaccine mandate. That generally is never given a vote by the other side of the aisle unless they know that it's probably not going to make it. So it did fail 50 to 48. I voted with uh, the Lee Marshall amendment, as did every other Republican that was there. What appealed to me about the CRA is it's specifically designed for rulings. You can have executive orders and you can have So rulings. CRA, just explain CRA. That's a Congressional Review Act that right. is the way to, through a resolution of disapproval, as long as you get 30 senators on board, it then becomes a privileged vote that has to go to the floor. So it took me a couple days to get 30 Republicans on board, about another uh, week to 10 days to get the other 20. And then uh, last Thursday, Joe Manchin, uh, I talked to him on the floor. I talked to four, five, six other Democrats as well. Just heard here a little bit ago, John Tester from Montana is going to join. So it's gaining speed. It'll guarantee a vote out of the Senate. Every House Republican, it's a little different rule structure there. They have to have a discharge petition that needs 218 representatives. Every Republican is there, and I'm guessing there are 30 swing district congressmen and women that are Democrats that if they're listening to their own constituents, they're going to say, hey, we may like the vaccine. Heck, we're lucky we have that as a tool. But when you're going to use that as a cudgel, that you either get it or you get tested or you lose your job, um, almost all the country is, is against that. And that goes deep into Democratic ranks if they'll listen to their own constituents. So you think that the way it is being proposed in the Senate, that you're going to be able to force the vote, you've got the vote, sounds like you've got at least 52 votes at this point for that, that's all you would need for it to pass the Senate, go over to the House. Does Pelosi have to give a vote? I know a discharge petition is sort of a uh, one of the few tools that the minority has over there. They have tried to really crack down on their people to never, ever, ever, ever vote with Republicans on discharge petitions, even if people might agree with what the substance is, because you don't want to let the minority basically take over the floor. Do you think that they would be able to maintain their discipline should this thing pass the Senate the way it sounds like it's going to? It'll at least say that the iron fist of Pelosi, who who knows how much longer she is going to be there, she's impacting the viability of at least 25 to 30 Republicans in the swing district, or I mean Democrats in these swing districts mm-hmm. that will have a really tough decision. Am I going to do what my constituents want, what maybe I think is the right thing to do, or am I going to listen to Nancy Pelosi? She cannot necessarily strong arm them into not doing it. She would have levers and probably things she could do to make their life miserable. So we'll see what wins out. It'll certainly say that every Republican there, bipartisan in the Senate, that makes it a lot uh, higher profile. And it goes along with, look at the courts. Every court has weighed in that this is a bad idea. Uh, Looks like even the federal mandate involving federal employees and contractors has now been softened because even the administration doesn't want to do something that they know would chase 5, 10, 15 percent of federal employees away when you do it in this manner. I want to ask you about, since you're talking about House Democrats, some of those vulnerable Democrats might be feeling a bit antsy these days and maybe eager to cast a vote 
against leadership on some respect or on some item because every single one of them except for one just recently voted for the so-called Build Back Better Reconciliation Democrat spending spree, trillions of dollars, uh, not all paid for, contributing hugely to deficits, funding elective abortion. You go down the whole line. And one of the points that I have made and I'm going to keep making is when Republicans passed tax reform in 2017, Democrats all said, oh, they every one of them voted against it. They said this is Armageddon. That was Pelosi's word. This is a big giveaway to the rich. It's going to hurt the middle class. It's uh, it's going to blow a hole in our deficit. It's going to starve the federal government. All of that was wrong. Revenues hit record levels. The economy took off. Wages finally improved for the American people. All the things the Republicans said it would do, it succeeded on. The Democrats' fear-mongering and dire predictions were all wrong. And now, despite all of those attacks that were inaccurate against the Republican tax reform, when you look at Build Back Better, what the Democrats just passed out of the House – It is actually true of that bill that it has a big tax cut giveaway to millionaires and rich people in blue states, and it raises taxes on tens of millions of middle class people. I mean, it is pretty wild to see the Democrats doing that. And one of the vulnerable Democrats that I referenced, Abigail Spanberger from Virginia, she gave an interview. She was like talking about how crazy it was to spend all this money with people's head exploding with inflation right now. She was among those who voted in favor of the bill that she was basically arguing against. Are you surprised, Senator, at the brazenness of the House Democrats to just all line up behind Pelosi and vote for something on the record that raises taxes on a lot of the middle class while giving a tax break giveaway to millionaires, given the way that Democrats present themselves and the rhetoric that they always put out there. Not at all, because I call them political opportunists, and I've even called them political entrepreneurs. hate to debase the word and use entrepreneurs (laughs) there, but the best way to understand them is the federal government is their growth business, and they, Rahm Emanuel, tells everybody, don't let uh, any opportunity or crisis go to waste, and they have played up the whole thing around COVID to put into play their wish list, and then they also confuse people, Guy by all the spending because even back home in a conservative place like Indiana, I'll get county commissioners saying, well, how can I spend this money? And they even bring and lure so-called conservatives into like stuff for infrastructure, things that they like. uh, And they tell you they go for broke and they generally know that we don't undo anything when we get the reins of power. We better the next time. It's in the context too, guy, where the CBO, I almost had them ready to reconfigure on the $150 billion, $1.5 trillion over 10 years on the tax impact of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. That was close to revenue neutral pre-COVID, and it was becoming that way. But we still spend more than we take in, even with record revenues. And the other point, we're now nearly $30 trillion in debt. We were only $18 trillion in debt a little under three years ago when I got here. Uh, And they shrugged their shoulders on that as well. All those things come home to roost. But the sugar high of all the spending is the elixir that they think will kind of put all these things, you know, to where it's going to be hard to understand and they'll litigate it accordingly. Well, I'm very pleased that every single Republican in Congress is against this Build Back Better 
scheme from the Democrats, uh, unanimity there on the Republican side, which is good to see. And you're right. Looking back, and I think you have to look back at 2017 and the tax cuts and the tax reform and all the predictions that the other side made, if they asked to be treated seriously now and trusted now, look at what they just said recently. They were just wrong about all of it. You had individual tax revenues hit all-time highs. Corporate tax revenues just hit an all-time high. The reason that the deficits keep exploding is not because Republicans cut taxes. It's because revenues went up after that. Economic growth increased after that. But the federal government kept spending even more. And then that, of course, exploded during COVID. So there's an explanatory factor right there. Senator Mike Braun, Republican Indiana, will be watching that vote this week very closely on The Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, there was an interesting piece in the Washington Post over the weekend. We have actually been very interested in this genre, the drama surrounding Vice President Kamala Harris. We told you about another story recently that seemed like maybe Kamala's people had planted, attacking critics and people within the administration, sexism, racism, all the excuses. Now, this seems to be the blowback, right, and the pushback in the Washington Post where people lined up to trash her and her leadership style. And it is just delicious, well-deserved. I'll read some of it. It starts with an anecdote about rumors circulating over the summer that the staff of the vice president was, quote, wilting in a dysfunctional and frustrated office, burned out just a few months after her historic swearing in and pondering exit strategies, talking about the staffers. And it's all very historic if you're checking certain identity boxes, but... That only gets you so far. Apparently, it gets you the nomination. It gets you the pick and the nomination, and then it's an excuse to rely on if you're failing because of your own inadequacies as opposed to actual bigotry. Because the argument would have to be that Democratic voters and the Biden administration is just shot through with sexism and racism. Whoa, if true, as they say. But in order to push back against this narrative, they had a big barbecue at the vice presidential mansion, they all posted a bunch of photos of them eating hamburgers and talking about how awesome everything was and how much they all loved each other so much. Let me tell you about these burgers at the VP's residence, tweeted Simone Sanders, Chief Harris spokesperson. She went on to call people lobbing criticism behind nameless quotes, cowards, and stressed that working for a groundbreaking vice president was a difficult job, but not a dehumanizing one. Five months later, reports the Washington Post, Simone Sanders is leaving the vice president's office, along with three other high-profile staffers. The quartet of soon-to-be-empty desks reignited questions about why Harris churns through top-level Democratic staff, an issue that has colored her nearly 18 years in public service, including her historic, they love that word, groundbreaking, historic, all this stuff, we get it including her historic but uneven first year as vice president. That is certainly one way to put it. Critics scattered over two decades 
point to an inconsistent and at times degrading principle, meaning her, who burns through seasoned staff members who have succeeded in other demanding high-profile positions. People used to putting aside missteps, sacrificing sleep, and enduring the occasional tirade from an irate boss say doing so under Harris can be particularly difficult as she has struggled to make progress on her vice presidential portfolio or measure up to the potential that has many pegging her as the future of the Democratic Party. Republicans could only be so lucky. Quote, one of the things we've said in our little group texts among each other is what the common denominator through all of this is. And it's her, says one Democratic strategist who quit after just five months working for Harris back in 2013. The Washington Post spoke with 18 people connected to Harris for this story. That's the other frequent feature of these types of stories about Harris. It's not one or two people. It's like the New York Times spoke with 74 people connected to the vice president. People really want to come out of the woodwork and say things about this woman. In this case, they've got 18 sources, including former and current staffers, West Wing officials, so team Biden, and other supporters and critics. Her defenders say the criticism against her is often steeped in racism and sexism. Okay, so we know that. That's their go-to. All those racists and sexists in the Biden White House and all those racist and sexist Democratic voters who disliked her so much she didn't even make it to Iowa when she ran for president, duly noted. One of her defenders does so by comparing her to Trump. (laughs) You know that's going to be a a successful defense within Democratic circles being like, well, if she were a man, she'd be like Trump. I'm not sure that's the endorsement that Kamala Harris was hoping for here. This to me is... The brutal passage in the story from the Post over the weekend, quote, staffers who worked for Harris before she was vice president said one consistent problem was that Harris would refuse to wade into briefing materials prepared by staff members, then berate employees when she appeared unprepared. So she wouldn't do the preparation, would look unprepared and then would blame other people for that. Quote, it's clear that you're not working for somebody who is willing to do the prep and the work. One former staffer said, with Kamala, you have to put up with a constant amount of soul-destroying criticism and also her own lack of confidence. So you're constantly sort of propping up a bully, and it's not really clear why. For both critics and supporters, the question is not simply where Harris falls on the line between demanding and demeaning. Many worry that her inability to keep and retain staff will hobble her future ambitions. And the story goes on and on. Now, before I make one or two more points, we did reach out to the vice president for response, and this was her official reply. Listen. (laughs) (laughs) She makes some good points. Now, I'll just say this. As was noted in this Washington Post story, this is not something that has cropped up in the vice presidency for Kamala Harris. This has been a standing defect of her management style going back 20 years in every office she's ever held. People coming to work for her and then quitting because she's awful to work for, is unprepared, and can be abusive. So they get out. That would not be about all of them. That would be about her. And if the Democrats have decided to go all in on Harris as the future of the party, which was sort of 
the idea behind nominating Biden, beating Trump, and then having the next generation upcoming and an heir apparent, they have done so with someone who is extremely, I would say, underqualified at this stage and who represents a massive political liability to the party. And if they think they can just throw her overboard because of her glaring inadequacies in 2024 and beyond, well, it's quite clear what Team Kamala has in mind as a response. She is extremely ambitious. She wants to be president. She believes that she should be the next president, like she's sort of the president in waiting already. And if you disagree, then the identity politics cudgel is going to come out to beat you aggressively. This is how Democrats argue. This is how they demonize Republicans. And when they need to position themselves within their own party, it's their go-to. Identity over substance. This is the bed that they've made. And it looks like Kamala Harris and her team are getting ready to make them lie in it, which could be highly entertaining. Unless you're one of these poor staffers desperately looking for an exit sign and an off-ramp. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay with us. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website every single day. The podcast is free and on demand. Check out Special Report tonight. I'll be on the panel probably around 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel, with Brett Baer, Bill Bennett, Marliason. That's the rest of the crew on the panel discussion coming up later this evening. Hope you'll tune in. And the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. Found a few empty cans in the backyard today. Blowing around in the wind after that party we had over the weekend. We are just fully out of Long Drink. We need to restock at the house. TheLongDrink.com, that's their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can order online. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, TheLongDrink.com. A couple things I want to bring to you involving our media. And the mentality of many in our media, including some of our competitors at Fox News in the cable news space, CNN and MSNBC. Let's start with MSNBC. They've got a show on that network called The Beat with Ari Melber. I'm not really familiar with this show, but I guess it airs on that channel. And this crew has decided that they are going to throw in with Dana Milbank and his new column at The Washington Post that we discussed yesterday with Byron York. And it seems like much of the professional left has decided that their new talking point collectively is the media is extremely biased against Joe Biden. And in some ways, they're worse on him than they were on Trump. Harder on Biden than Trump. This is, it should be needless to say, preposterous. Even if you strongly dislike Trump, you know 
that the media was extremely hostile toward him and that almost everyone in the elite news media voted for Joe Biden. The idea that they're going extra hard on Joe Biden and went relatively easy on Trump is ludicrous. But they have their evidence, right, because they love data and science, even if they hate data and science that they choose to ignore and make up data and science to suit their narratives. Right? People who express a fetish for science often reject a whole lot of science and data that they dislike. So Milbank cited some algorithm that has been decried by data people as garbage. Crap is what Nate Silver called it, but that was the basis of that column, with Milbank saying that by being so harsh toward Biden, which is hilarious to begin with, the media is complicit in the murder of democracy. It's just like you cannot make that up. Just so over the top. Hyperbole doesn't even quite cut it as a descriptor. So this MSNBC show trying to, quote unquote, prove this phenomenon, they juxtapose two Associated Press headlines that are supposed to demonstrate how the media is super biased against Biden in a way that they weren't against Trump. So there was a February 2018 headline, U.S. employers added a robust 200,000 jobs in January. Then they compare that, and they put this full screen up on the screen on MSNBC. They compare that with a December 2021 headline, U.S. employers added a sluggish 210,000 jobs in November. Saying, see, back in 2018, 200,000 jobs was robust under Trump, but under Biden, even more jobs, 210,000, that was described as sluggish. Bias. Here's what they don't tell you in making this extremely stupid point, trying to appeal to stupid people in order to justify a stupid premise. What they don't tell you is the relative situation in the economy and the expectations in February of 2018 versus December of 2021, right? Jobs gained or added and growth often depends on where the economy is coming from, right? If it's in a huge hole, bigger job gains could be less impressive than an economy that's doing pretty well that nevertheless adds robust growth. So the Republicans cut regulation. They passed tax reform. The Democrats lied incessantly about it. But those policies helped spur a huge economic boom in 2018 and 2019 until the pandemic. So, yes, back in February of 2018, the consensus among economists was that 180,000 jobs would be added. And that expectation was beaten with 200,000 jobs. The jobs came in higher than expected because the baseline was already healthier. Hence, robust. As opposed to this month, looking back at the November jobs report, the expectation among economists was half a million jobs, and it fell short by almost 300,000. They were expecting 500,000. They got 210,000 instead. When we were already climbing out of a big hole, the baseline being much lower, thanks to the pandemic and that related recession. Hence, sluggish. 
but they just put the two numbers side by side, totally free of context, to fortify the premise, fortify the storyline that this media, of which they are a part, populated by left-leaning progressives, if not full-blown progressive activists, they're just so mean to Biden. And they gave Trump a pass. If you were a sentient human being over the last five or six years paying any attention to any of this, you know how ridiculous that is. But they're going with it. Right, just like the Democrats claimed for a while, no, it was really the Republicans who wanted to defund the police. Remember that gaslighting? Or AOC this week saying that all the smash and grab looting, that's overblown. It hasn't really panned out. It's not real. Or that the rioting over last summer was mostly peaceful and not really that widespread. Or that the multi-trillion dollar Democrat spending bill costs zero dollars. Or that critical race theory and racialized curricula, that's just made up and invented by conservatives and right-wing media over and over again. They tell you to shut down all of your senses, all of your own observations about what is happening in reality around you and just trust them on whatever narrative they're going to push. And this one might be the most hilarious yet, that the media is just too biased against the Democrats and Joe Biden. If they could only be as nice to Biden as they were against Trump. You know what? I would be all for that. Please apply the exact level of hostility to Joe Biden that you did with Trump. It would look a lot different than any of this. Meanwhile, over at CNN, we have this guy, Jim Acosta. Remember him? He was their White House correspondent who would give these big preening speeches to get famous. That's a total showboat blowhard. Well, he got demoted because they gave him his own show on the weekend that, I mean, I don't, does anyone watch CNN on weekends or ever? So I know technically he got his own show, but it kind of felt like a demotion. And he's trying to go viral on that show. Bear in mind that CNN says they do not have opinion hosts, only news anchors and journalists. So here's a news anchor, Jim Acosta, begging his party, the Democrat Party, to get tougher because they're just too nice. And what they really need to do is act more like Mitch McConnell, that evil, ruthless Mitch McConnell. And he says that they need to blow up the filibuster just like Mitch McConnell would do. Cut 15. Democrats could think about it this way. If Mitch McConnell were in their shoes, what would he do? Given what we know, would we see him letting the filibuster stand? Is the filibuster more important than election rights and women's rights? Is it more important than the lives of our teenagers, the safety of our schools? Democrats could just ask themselves, what would Mitch do? Or they can just keep on thinking, life's a Mitch. Oh, so clever. He must have the very best writers. First of all, wow, very offensive, euphemizing abortion as women's rights because, wow, that's bigotry. We are told by the left that not just women have abortions. So I, I think the woke police might need to have a word with Jim. But his whole premise here is that if Mitch McConnell were running the show, what would he do on the filibuster? He'd get rid of it to pass things that he wanted to pass. So Democrats ought to do the same thing on abortion and quote unquote election rights 
and guns and other things. The only problem with this galaxy brain analysis, which is just activism, right? This is not journalism, what I just played for you. They claim Jim Acosta is a news anchor. He is just lobbying his party to move further to the left by destroying an institution. These are the pro-institutions people. They also insist. So in this opinion rant, Jim Acosta's whole point is Mitch McConnell would surely get rid of the filibuster if he were in charge. The thing that Jim maybe doesn't know, he's not the brightest, or he's forgotten, maybe has a very bad memory, or he's just not telling you because he wants to make a point and doesn't want to get facts involved and get those in the way of pursuing his agenda. What he fails to mention, regardless of why, and remember, he was White House correspondent for CNN during all of this. In the last presidency, Donald Trump pressured Mitch McConnell repeatedly to get rid of the filibuster, to pass things like abortion restrictions and wall funding for the border wall, police reform from Tim Scott and other things. Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate said no over and over again. So this hypothetical argument that we're hearing, and it's not just Acosta, other leftists make it all the time. Well, what would Mitch do? We know what Mitch would do because it just happened. This is not recent history. This is not a hypothetical. This literally happened. He was under pressure to do exactly what you are claiming he would do in a heartbeat, and he didn't do it. He resisted those requests and those demands from Trump every time. So they're trying to rewrite history. This is just like MSNBC and all the other gaslighting. They want you to just set aside all observations of reality as it exists and trust them because reasons. The biggest change, last point to the filibuster in the last few decades, was done by Harry Reid and the Democrats when they blew up the judicial filibuster when Obama was president. And McConnell warned them not to do it. They did it anyway. Then the Republicans simply used the Democrats' new standard against them. And the Democrats are furious that that happened. This happens repeatedly, actually. This is the dynamic. Democrats escalate unilaterally. Then Republicans use the new standard against them. And the Democrats claim victimhood, like the Republicans have done something new and evil, justifying the next unilateral escalation by the Democrats, which is exactly what Jim Acosta is begging his party to do yet again. While hoping that his audience is too stupid to know the actual facts and context surrounding what he's saying. And you know what? This is not often true for Jim Acosta, but in this particular case, perhaps he's right about that. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. We are joined now by Matt Finn, Fox News national correspondent who's covering the Smollett trial in Chicago. Matt, great to see you over the weekend at the Christmas party. Great to have you back here. Thanks for having me, Guy, at the party and on the show. Absolutely. So it's been a very eventful couple days in the Smollett trial with Jossie himself taking the stand yesterday and then cross-examination today. What were the big moments in your mind? Okay, so Jossie Smollett just got off the stand. He is done both the prosecution and defense. Now rest, we have closing arguments scheduled for tomorrow. Some of the highlights from Jossie Smollett's testimony under oath today. He denied in detail 
planning anything to do uh, with an alleged hoax, testifying he did not ask the Osindar brothers to beat him, use racial slurs, or buy red hats. Smollett also again testified that he has a permanent scar under one of his eyes and a permanent black eye. Well, the special prosecutor pushed back and said, did you happen to see yourself on the GNA interview a short while after your alleged beatdown, you know, implying that you looked pretty good? Uh, and Smollett said he had good Hollywood hair, makeup, and lighting for that interview. <laughs> if you watch it, it, he doesn't have any apparent scars or bruises. Also, Smollett insists that he was talking with Bola Osendario the night of the alleged attack, you know, in private messages and on phone calls about a nutrition plan and a workout plan. You know, Smollett maintains that his, you know, basic entire communication and payment towards the Osendario brothers was about a workout plan. Well, the prosecutor pushed back and says, <clears throat> um, what were you talking about specifically? And Smollett said, well, I was told I needed to get four eggs, you know, after 1 a.m. in the morning. So Smollett explains that's why he left his house to go to Walgreens in the frigid cold after 1 a.m. to get four eggs. And then he was also setting up a 9.30 a.m. workout session with Bola Osendaro uh, the night after the alleged attack. Well, there are no messages that ever reveal anything to do with a 9.30 a.m. Uh, session, at least in any of the evidence. And there were no messages to indicate that they canceled that session. So the prosecutor said, you know, how come there's nothing to show that you guys planned this or canceled it? You know, planting the seeds of doubt with the jury, you know, indicating that perhaps all of their communication that night was in fact about the alleged hoax. Well, Small, I said, oh, I woke up the next day. Obviously, I was disturbed. I didn't have time to cancel it. But the prosecutor said, well, Osendaro never showed up at your door, right? So there was also that. And then last but not least, you know, Smollett maintains that the brothers paid, uh, he paid the brothers $3,500 for a workout plan. The brothers say it was $3,500 to pretend to be Trump supporters. Uh, and Smollett says none of his messages ever indicate anything to do with an alleged hoax. So many of his messages were discussed, but he says none of them prove there was this hoax. So, <laughs> I mean, so much of this is... So bizarre. I'm so mad, honestly, Matt, that this trial is not televised because I would love to see this performance with my own eyes. We have to rely on you in the courtroom following all of it. So he's saying because I thought he went out to get a Subway sandwich because he was hungry. Now he's saying he went out at that time in the frigid cold in the middle of the night to go buy eggs at a drugstore. Yes, that's the explanation for leaving his apartment. He said he was communicating back and forth with Bola Osendaro. And Bola told him that night, you need to eat eggs. You need four eggs to keep up with your meal plan. So Smollett says he went to the Walgreens, which was closed. So then he went to the subway. We know he's seen on video at the subway and walking home with the sandwich. Amazing. And that was the reason that he was out. And I guess the reason that these brothers could find him because they knew he was going out to get the eggs, which he had to get at one o'clock in the morning, certainly not before the 930 workout session that they were supposedly planning that they then never called or messaged about or transpired or canceled. That all makes perfect sense if you are, what, blind, deaf, and dumb? I guess that's the best he could come up with. Very briefly, Matt, just 30 seconds, he also smeared the police, in my view, and was also upset about the reading aloud of his own text messages at one point, right? Yes, he was asked why he didn't call police. He says as a black man, he didn't trust police. And then a lot of his messages contained the N-word. So the, the prosecutor was reading his messages aloud, using the N-word, which is verbatim. And then Smollett interrupted him and said, actually, you know what? Uh, can you stop using that word uh, out of respect for the African-Americans in this room? And the, I thought the prosecutor was very respectful. and goes, oh, I'm sorry. I don't, you know, I basically don't mean to offend anyone. You can read your messages aloud. And that's when Smollett read his own messages containing the N-word. Ah, uh, very good. What a performance uh, from Jussie. 
And we have this hate crime hoaxer informing the country and the jury that he doesn't trust the police. Well, the police don't trust him for all the reasons that have been established at trial. And we are awaiting closing arguments tomorrow. Matt Finn, Fox News national correspondent. He's been on this case since the very beginning. Matt, appreciate it. We'll see what the jury does upcoming. All right. I'll talk to you then. (laughs) Matt Finn on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's a happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. An unhappy topic is what's happening on the border of Ukraine with Russian aggression looking likely or at least very plausible. The world is very concerned. President Biden had a word with Vladimir Putin in a virtual meeting earlier today. We discussed all of it with General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general and Fox News senior strategic analyst earlier on the program. Here's part of that discussion. Let's just start with your reaction. What were your some some of your big takeaways of what the National Security Advisor said? What jumped out at you as he briefed the press corps today? Well, first of all, I mean, it, it's critical that this meeting take place. And, 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 as, and as he mentioned in his uh, presser, there's no substitute, you know, for, for direct contact between two leaders you know, who have such fundamental disagreements and, and the potential of conflict is on the horizon. So having this session uh, is the right thing to do. It, it gets the opportunity for Putin to air his concerns and his frustrations that he has, and, and they're deep-founded uh, to our president, and our president gets to lay out the consequences of Putin's actions if he's going to I uh, introduced uh, military conflict and military incursion in a, in Ukraine, and with no equivocation. Uh, and that's the good thing. You look look each other in the eye and and be direct and frank about what our positions are and what our intent is. There is really no substitute uh, for something like that. Staff can be very helpful in framing issues, but then in dealing one on one is very important. And and Putin is a master. At making assessments of American presidents, I, I frankly think uh, from 2000 when he began to deal with uh, President Bush after 2001 uh, through the current uh, president, uh, he, he's a he's a master at dealing with our presidents. And to be frank about it, uh, he, he's on his way with, uh, with with most of them because he 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 reads them so well and he knows how to advantage his position at the expense of the of the United States. So these meetings and how our president uh, uh, is able to carry the day in terms of uh, his conviction, uh, his determination, and his resolve is a measurement that Putin is, is paying a lot of attention to. He knows Biden for sure, uh, and he's also formed an opinion of him after he's had this his first session. But some specifics. I mean, clearly what we are telling Putin is that we are going to respect the sovereignty and the territorial integrity of Ukraine and they and their desires. In other words, if they want to move to integrate with the European Union, if at some time they want to have membership in NATO, that's their decision. And we're not going to dismiss those decisions cavalierly because they are a, a fledgling democracy 
And certainly that is the very reason why uh, Yanukovych, uh, Putin stooge Yanukovych, who was running the country in 2014, he was deposed by the people in a street revolution that, that made him flee. And the reason for the people being upset was because they wanted to move towards the West and away from Russia, towards prosperity and towards better uh, political and military security for their democracy, which they were beginning to enjoy and know it's very different from what's taking place in Russia. Second thing I got out of this is that we're going to issue certainly some tough sanctions on Russia, and it was made clear to them that the sanctions that we had considered doing in 2014 that were the real tough ones, which Putin was very much aware of, this is the taking him out of the international banking system, which would devastate his economy, and some other issues like Nord Stream 2, which really wasn't uh, that much of an issue in 2014, but it is now, and some other things dealing uh, with his oil and gas industry and some of his inner circles. There's a host of things that that we can do um, that would actually have significant impact on Putin in a way that previous sanctions guy, you know, he has pretty much absorbed those sanctions and blew them off. And well, really and, and that's his behavior. Just to jump in before you get to your third point, I want to stay on this one for a second because I think it's important. And that's one of the obvious questions that comes to mind. You saw what the Russians did in Georgia, the country of Georgia in 2008, and basically got away with it to a certain extent. They absolutely got away with taking Crimea from Ukraine with that sham election. They also had incursions elsewhere in Ukraine with the little green men. And the world said that's not good. We're not happy. There were sanctions. There was tough talk, right? All of that. And none of that history has clearly deterred Putin from uh, growing more rapacious, wanting even more, and now setting up at least what would appear to be a staging ground for a land invasion. My full interview with General Jack Keane on Russia and more, available at GuyBensonShow.com, part of the free podcast. The entire show for free, on demand, each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine's wedding was actually in the news, made headlines recently. I don't know why it took so long. She's been married for, what, 10 years? Uh, But we got the headline out of it. We'll share that with you next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Just a reminder, I'll be joining Brett Bayer and company on Special Report, part of the panel, coming up in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time, so perhaps... We will see you there. Here's a headline. And immediately I thought, wow, the media is finally getting around to covering producer Christine's wedding. Ten or so years later. New York Post and, of course, the New York Post uh, masters of the headline that can grab your attention. Bride passes out, vomits, and gets pooped on during disaster wedding. So I scrolled down with great anticipation. Turns out it was not producer Christine. It was a woman named Holly Darnell. And what happened was she started to feel unwell at the altar. She said that she passed out, puked, and got pooped on during their wedding ceremony. I kept trying to tell my husband, I don't feel good. He thought I was joking. 
captioning a trending TikTok of her mid-marriage medical mishap. Apparently, it's on video. In the chaotic clip, which has drawn the attention of over 3.7 million viewers, a visibly wobbly Darnell is seen gripping her groom, signaling to him that she'd suddenly fallen ill just as the pastor began officiating their holy matrimony under a gazebo in Florida. She then fell limp into her husband-to-be's arms. Are you okay, he responded. After he and the pastor caught her, she shook her head no. The camera ultimately panned away from the barfing bride. You can still hear what sounds like her puking in the background while wedding guests and the efficient awkwardly talk amongst themselves, blaming the humidity for what happened. What it turned out to be, though, was she was very dehydrated. She hadn't consumed any liquid at all, no water, nothing, and had not eaten anything all day long. So then she had low blood pressure and low iron, and and the rest, I guess, is history. The thing that I was wondering, though, like, what happened to this uh, defecation part of the headline? Well... The disaster wasn't over yet. The New York Post in their story saying, unfortunately for Darnell, that wasn't the only incident involving bodily fluid on her wedding day. Quote, after I passed out, my sister had a fan on my baby nephew. So she came over to put that fan on me. And as she was holding my nephew, he started pooping. And the poop went down her arm and onto my dress. What a scene. They had a honeymoon planned in New York City. She was able to get her dress cleaned. And they basically tied the knot anyway. And now they've got a good story. So I guess she's being a pretty good sport about it. This is, I mean, you hear about wedding nightmares. Short of getting stood up, right? Where someone runs away and flees and decides that they want to break up. Or someone gets up and objects and the whole thing falls into total chaos. Fisticuffs. I was actually at a wedding recently where after we left, apparently there was a huge brawl, like big brawl, people screaming. They had to turn all the lights on, tables overturned, that kind of thing. I was long gone by that point in the evening. Thank goodness. That would be up there in terms of, uh, you know, the, the nightmare list. But to be standing, I remember when we were getting married, I was so nervous being up there in front of everyone. And I'm in front of people all the time. I'm on TV. That stuff doesn't really make me that nervous. But given the gravity of what a wedding is and everything, it was just a lot. We actually had Kennedy, our officiant and our dear friend, do all the reading involved, including we wrote letters to each other. She read both of them because I was not sure I could get through it without crying or getting emotional. So I was like, you do it. I just outsourced everything to Kennedy. But the passing out would be bad enough. Then the uh, the throwing up in front of everyone, that's like strike two. And then overcomes the sister with the fan and the small child. And let's just cap this thing off with, uh, with that. Christine, do you have any reaction to this before we move on to another story that might be of great interest to you? This would have been my biggest nightmare. I remember thinking there's so many things that could go wrong, you know, leading up to the wedding and you can't control 
And one of the two things I remember thinking I cannot control at all was A, the weather, and B, if I got any type of stomach bug. Because you can figure out a way to, you know, deal with a cold or if you had a headache or a migraine. But if you had some sort of vomit-inducing issue going into your wedding, there's nothing you really could do. I remember. I think I would just want like a like a do-over. Like everyone, just stay where you are. I'm going to go have some water. I'm going to calm down. We're going to try to wash this dress off or whatever. We're just going to walk the aisle again. We're going to start all over. Because I don't know how you really recover from that. I guess there were like multiple things on this dress. Like multiple, uh, I don't even know what to call them. I guess bodily fluids. So maybe you don't want to walk in again with, you know, with that on your person, right? You don't want to be wearing that as you walk down the aisle. Oh, the photographs must have been Just not something you even want to, you know, because like, Mishaps happen at weddings, and you could say, oh, at least I went viral. It's kind of fun, but this isn't something you want to go viral yeah, for. She's leaning into it. The video, I started watching the video. I had to stop. I could not watch the whole thing. It made me too uncomfortable and feel too bad for her. But I guess, look, once it's already happened and there's no getting around it, I guess she just decided I'm going to embrace the nightmare and just own it. And we wish the very best to the happy couple. Meanwhile, Christine, I saw this story and immediately thought of you. Smoke-tainted California grapes get new life as vodka, or as you would say, vodka. After wildfires raged across California wine country last year, two companies joined forces to make sure smoke-tinged grapes didn't go to waste. So we were actually just out in Napa for our two-year anniversary, and they were telling us that many, many, many of the grapes from the previous season were just ruined. And some people there were telling us, oh, some folks will try to market this like, there are smoky notes. Like, no, it smells and tastes disgusting. It's like an ashtray. We cannot make wine out of this. Do you just throw away an entire crop of grapes? That's what a lot of people have chosen to do, but in this case— a wine company and a vodka company have teamed up to turn the altered grapes, according to The Hill, into an exclusive new vodka, Hangar One's Smoke Point Vodka, distilled from grapes and grain. And so they are going to try to turn this disaster into like a boutique round of vodka offerings. And I have to wonder... Is this something that you are inspired by, Christine, the ingenuity here? And also, are you so inspired that you're going to rush out and get some smoky vodka for an upcoming weekend or weeknight or weekday? So, yes, uh, I'm intrigued. And yes, I'm actually going to buy this because um, proceeds of the sale goes to the California Fire Foundation. So not only am I going to enjoy some different type of vodka. I'm helping out the state of California, and they need a lot of help. Let's be honest. Yeah, it's, it's really just selfless. Like, I know. This I is mean, an act of charity. I really. I do what I can to help others. Um, and what's even better is they said there's no trace of smoke. It actually has sweet flavors of vanilla, licorice, and butterscotch. So I'm all in California. I'm on my way. 
with a peppery allspice finish. I'm not a vodka person at all. I don't like it. I can't drink it. It's maybe my least favorite hard liquor. But I know it's your go-to. We did not have it at the party, though. No, and you so, say that, but what do you mean? You're. I mean, who says they're not a vodka person? Like what? Me. What? Yeah, but no. I just said it. But what's wrong with it? I mean, it, it has I, to be. It's like you. paint thinner. I, I just. I do not like the taste. Have you at all? Have you never had like a sour apple martini or a Cosmo? I don't like martinis. What about a nope, Cosmo? Not a, no. You and I are going to have a Cosmo night one night. No. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, we're going to try it. I have had vodka. I don't like it. Is the point? So you can ha- you can have this. Uh, what's it called? Uh, fire, like smoke tinged vodka. You can have all of that that you want. The only thing is, don't do any renewal of vows right after all of your vodka consumption because you might end up like this other woman with a little uh, wooziness, a little collapse, a little emergency. And then you know Rosie could come over and do business. One has no idea what. This could turn into so I would just say drink responsibly as we always encourage people here on the happy hour, which you did for the most part on Saturday night. We will not be tweeting the photos of you in the Uber, which I was texted by Quiet Wyatt last night. We yeah. are not going to put a those lot, Wyatt. Yeah, out, out in public because I got that in, in all caps. Do not share these. <laughs> uh, that's good. I actually had a few people asking if we would put out the doorbell footage of you and Bobby bickering outside the house about whether you should enter without <laughs> knocking. And I think we're going to also withhold that. That's just – that's fun for the team. We get to enjoy that internally here at the Guy Benson Show. All right, Christine. Sorry about the uh, refusal to try – what's it called? Cosmo? I'm just not going to no, do we're, it. We're, 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 just work, we're just starting out here. This is just a starting off point. We'll get you to do Cosmos. Don't worry. Maybe I'll have a Cosmo while you're having French onion soup since you have to pay out that bet, which you still haven't done. That could be an idea, but I don't feel like I should have to give you anything in exchange for you simply paying off a bet that you lost. And we're out of time. I could go into all of it, but it's on the record. It's on tape, and you owe us French onion soup. That's a fun way to end the show. Very confusing to people who don't know that backstory. Just trust me. She made a bet. She says she hates French onion soup. And she needs to pay up. See you tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. Special report on the news channel in the next hour. Have a great night. everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.